Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to Caged In, the Nicolas Cage podcast, where I try and figure out, is Nick Cage the greatest actor of all time? But we're not here for that today. This is what I like to call Caged In Conversation. This is episode eight of the series, where I talk to people who have in some way been inspired or touched by the life of Nicolas Cage, or in this case, as many of the case of the other episodes, people who have worked with or on films that Nicolas Cage has been in. I was very fortunate to be joined by Ken Sanzel. Ken has a fantastic story from once being a cop, and he turned his sights to being a writer and director. And we kind of talk in this episode about his come up, how he made that transition, and the things that he wants to explore. We talk very much about exploring the grey areas, the moral ambiguity, of characters as opposed to the black or the white. We also get into Nicolas Cage's process on a film, how professional is, how he kind of comes ready to work when he turns up to a set, which is always great to hear, especially since I've dedicated so much time to looking at the films he's done to hear that he is a nice guy as well as that we go into the influences on this film so do make sure you've either got your like notes open on your phone or a pen and paper to write down some of the films and the books that Ken mentions in this because I for sure know that I'm definitely going to be checking out the films that he has mentioned. If you haven't seen Kill Chain I would recommend watching it before you even listen to this interview. Unfortunately, me and Ken do get into some spoilers. We speak specifically about certain scenes and the kind of uh, how they were put together and stuff like that. And I think like if you haven't seen the film, A, they either might not make sense entirely or they will definitely spoil some of the second and third act moments of this film. I very much hope you do enjoy this conversation with Ken Sanzel. Please do join me at the end of the episode where I'll be talking about everything that's coming up in the next week or so and future plans for the podcast. We've got some exciting things. All that aside, there's one thing left to do and that's to get raging with Cage. (laughs) 
Today, I'm joined by writer and director of the 2019 crime drama Kill Chain, Ken Sanzel. How are you, Ken? Good, good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad. Um, this might be like a a weird jumping off point, but obviously it's um, it would be terrible of me to not, not mention, obviously, the elephant in the room that is everything that's going on in the states at the moment how, how, how's how's the mood yeah. for you over there at the moment angry you know disillusioned uh you know it's it's been a bad few months i i'm i guess you define me on the left just because of where the right is and uh yeah i mean it's it's a pretty it's a pretty fucking awful place we find the country <laughs> in right now and I think uh, I think we saw it coming, but uh, mm-hmm. not not any more fun to see just just how you know just how how willing some of our leaders are to to manipulate the easily manipulated mm-hmm. into doing some pretty heinous shit. And you know, as a as an ex cop, I'm, I'm particularly outraged and incensed by by what happened you know people who said they are pro-cop that yeah that is uh something that like is quite interesting because obviously when we come to talking about kill chain there's obviously like uh, a moral ambiguity to to characters yeah. and at, at times there's obviously you can very much look at the cop characters in that as morally bankrupt but at the same time you can look at the the quote-unquote criminals and like the people who are supposed to be the bad guys as sympathetic and people that you want to root for and like is that something that's like baked into that script yeah i mean i think it's baked into a lot of my work Uh, i think because of where i come from i i'm more interested in the moral grayscale than Mm. than you know telling stories of heroes and villains uh Obviously, I've made a good living working in network TV where you do a lot of that, you know, that less interesting stuff. And in my movies and in my my indie work, the stuff that's 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 my passion, I tend to to go to what my life experience was. And certainly as a cop, you know, which is that there was, you know, there there were no hard lines. I mean, there certainly is evil in the world and there are. Mm -hmm people who do good but i think that everyone gets sullied and you know because this movie was was a was specifically a noir i i want to do honor to the spirit of noir which is which is about a sense of encroaching doom and and Mm -hmm. the fact that moral frailty sort of always runs you off a cliff and uh and even the redemption is you know, is is tainted and and uh, and nuanced. So, so obviously, do, yeah. Do you want if we like take a step back for a moment? And obviously, like you said, you used to be a cop. When did that like? When did you go right? I want to work in <laughs> film, film and TV. Like, well, how did that decision come about? I think I think like a lot of people, you know, I always wanted to, but mm-hmm. uh, what happened was. I had been I'd been writing scripts kind of on the side, you know, as a cop, you know, just as a as a release with no real belief it was going to go anywhere. And I had a friend, Steve Cohen, who I I'd been friends with since childhood, who ended up going. He went to film school. He went out to L.A. 
he went to work for for a studio that doesn't exist anymore savoy pictures and he was reading my stuff you know as a good friend reading my awful <laughs> scripts and and uh i think the fourth one i gave him he liked but nobody else did and the fifth one i gave him his boss liked and, and bought and the way hollywood tends to work is once someone says you're worth giving money to then you become validated in a, in a way and uh, from there my career sort of started in jump and uh, i guess it was about a year and a half or two later that i i got a three picture deal with that same company and that's when they amazing so that would have been scar city uh dodges city and lone lone hero would that would that be right or uh well scarred city was one of the three pictures that mm -hmm. i sold to savoy and then it ended up reverting back to me oh. when they went out of business and and i made it and the other two have never been made <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that from speaking to people that, that that seems to be the list of projects that never got made always seems oh, yeah. to be a lot longer than the ones that that, that tend to tend to get made um yeah the, the movie that i made before kill chain uh, uh blunt force trauma i made it what in 2015 and i'd written it in 2000 so so you know you never give up on them but they do sometimes take a long and circuitous route and sometimes they never get made so, so with some, some of them i think some of my older ones have probably aged out of of being particularly relevant anymore. Yeah, so with a script, like you say, like Blunt Force Trauma had been on the shelf, as it were, for, for close to 15 years. Like, how do you go about, like, was there many updates you had to do in regards to, obviously, like, even, even something as basic as, like, I don't know, phones, like, do you know what I mean? Like, the, the technology, technology and stuff like that has caught up so quickly. So is there just base level things you have to, to, to update like that? Or is it kind of the story is what it is and kind of tell it anyway? It, I mean, it varies with Blunt Force Trauma because basically it was smuggling, smuggling in a Western, you know, mm -hmm. as this kind of modern dueling story. Uh, it didn't require a lot because it felt like it existed in its own al alternate universe and even, you know, some, you know, there are kind of scattered references to cell phone video. And, and I think they, they feathered their way in later on, you know, like as we were going into production, but, you know, it, it varies, it varies from story to story, you know, because a lot of the stuff I write is sort of figurative and, and deliberately abstract because I'm not that interested in, in telling you how fingerprints work or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, you know, kind of, kind of technical hardware stuff and you know that may be because i did so much of that in network tv uh, you know i i tend to i tend to not have to update the stuff that works and the stuff that ages out tends to age out just because the world changed the the first script that that steve liked uh, uh was called rewind and the idea of it was that this cop uh kills a couple of holdup men in an atm and because of the way he shoots them, uh, he ends up have, getting fired and sort of taking on a new identity off in the Black Sea somewhere. And the video of the killing ultimately follows him because it becomes sold as a snuff film and he becomes a snuff film movie star. And that made sense in 1995. And nowadays mm -hmm. that's, you know, 
that's TV and the internet. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make sense anymore as you know as a as a uh, something you can make money off of. So. Yeah. Well, in, in nineteen ninety five, <laughs> if if that had gone into production, that would have been like a a perfect double bill with Joel Schumacher's eight millimeter, right? That kind of like uh, the CD world of snuff films. <laughs> and, you know, and interestingly, I had financing for it at one point, and because eight uh, millimeter, and I think. Uh, there was another one. There was another snuff film movie shortly after, and neither of them had done well. And so, uh, uh, Avi Lerner was interested in doing it. I think it was Patrick Swayze wanted to do the lead, and he was like, "No, you know, uh, can you make it about something else?" And I was like, "Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, can you make Star Wars not about stars? You know, yeah, yeah, not yeah, about yeah. outer space? You know, that kind of thing." So. So obviously yeah. you kind of touched on it slightly, but in this kind of like golden age of television, obviously like what, what made you go, no, I want to still continue like making, making films. Um, I think it's, you know, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong. I love TV. TV has mm. been great to me. I, you know, I haven't, I haven't exited TV, but I came into the business loving movies. I grew up loving seventies films mostly. Uh, and then discovering 40s and 50s films and, you know, the French New Wave. And, and there's just something about the journey of a film that, that is completely satisfying. And, and, you know, TV, even really kind of golden age TV, with a few exceptions, you feel the way that they distend it to fill the time necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, uh, and so, yeah, there's just something. Also, I think it has to do... The reason I ended up doing well in TV was that I write quickly and, you know, that's a, that's an asset in TV, but it also means that the reason I write quickly and and kind of work quickly is that if I hang on something too long on a first draft, especially I tend to turn on it, you know, I tend to, (laughs) to doubt it. And, and so there's a sort of a sprint to get that first draft done because then it's never as bad as I thought it was. And so I like with, with film and especially with indie film that there's sort of, you know, when you actually get to the starting gate, you know, you know, kill chain was three weeks of prep and then it was, you know, four weeks of shooting and three and a half weeks of shooting really. And it's like, you do it and you're done. And then, you know, you see what you've made. And so there's a satisfaction there. And then, you know, the, the things that I echo are all movies. You know, I just, I think there's a, there's an authority to film that TV has a hard time capturing because you don't really revisit series that often. Mm-hmm. That's a big commitment to even the miniseries to go back. Whereas movies, I mean, how often do you revisit the movies you love you know, over oh, and over again? Cool, yeah, constantly. Um, you touched on it earlier that uh, Blunt Force Trauma was on the shelf for a considerable amount of time. When when did you first come up with the idea of Kill Chain? <laughs> Actually, uh, what happened was when we were shooting Blunt Force Trauma in, in Bogota, uh, we scouted this hotel and it was this gorgeous colonial hotel. I think it was in La Calera, which is sort of their, uh, I call it sort of the Greenwich Village-y mm-hmm. you know, area of, of Bogota. It's, it's the part of Bogota that didn't you know, burn during, during the, the revolutions and the, and the fighting. And so you know, it almost looks like Cuba. And uh, there was this gorgeous, a hotel that the cinematographer took us to because we needed a couple of hostels and we ended up not using it because it was kind of too grand, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. too much grandeur. 
for what what I needed in that movie. And so when I got back and, you know, the producer, Gary Preisler, you know, said, look, you know, we're making a movie. The first thing, you know, the financiers are going to say is what's next? You know, do you have something else? And we had another thing we were trying to put together. Interestingly with Nick and he passed on it or never got to him. I don't know. But, uh, but so I had the idea to write something, you know, smaller than blunt force trauma where we had been at 18 locations over 23 mm -hmm. days. You know, we've just been all over freaking Bogota, you know, the outlying area. And I was like, I, you know, let's do something contained. And so I had this idea that I would do. The original idea was three stories shot in this hotel. The notion being that you could bring in the actors for each of the stories, shoot them out in a few days or how many other days, and then intercut everything, you know, and mm -hmm. sort of find it in editing. So that was the initial idea. This was like right after I came back while I was still editing Blunt Force Trauma. So that's like 2015. And two of the stories worked. One was the, you know, what became the sniper story, you know, the Rico mm -hmm. Colantoni story. And, uh, and the other was a version of what becomes the Nick story, you know, which is, which is patterned after this Raymond Chandler short story called I'll Be Waiting. That's about uh, a hotel detective and there's a woman sitting in the hotel and, you know, he realizes she's there to meet a gangster. And, and so I'd done a version of that. And then there was a third story and it just never came together. It was just fucking awful. <laughs> so a part of my, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to. You can swear as much as you fucking want. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, so that didn't work. And I told Gary, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I can crack this. And, and then about a week later, it was one of those, you know, I don't know if I was going for a walk or whatever. And I realized that what I wanted to do was take the two parts that worked and do a version of uh, Richard Linklater's uh, Slacker, you know, which is this movie where, you know, you start in one one sort of anecdote and then you know you follow one person away into a completely different story and you know by the end of the movie you're in a completely different place so i was like i'm going to do that you know but where each story ends with you know someone dies and then the people you know the killer we follow them to to whatever happens to them and so that that got me the cop story you know that sort of linked it together yeah. and then that that ended up making the Nick story, you know, obviously inform everything differently. And so that was, that was how it all came together. And so originally it really started the idea with my original idea was that a Nick Cage or someone like that would be the sniper. And you think, Oh, it's his movie until he dies. Yeah. And then it follows you to another story and another story. But, you know, once we cast Nick for the, you know, for, for, for John or, you know, I, you know, we, we don't give him a name or he's Aranya. Uh, once, once we cast him as Aranya, then the producers were like, well, he has to be at the beginning too. And so I created that sort of framing sequence, which is uh, pretty, pretty nakedly paraphrasing the beginning of uh, the killers, you know, the Robert mm -hmm. Syad Mac, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. The Burt Lancaster movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is based on the Hemingway story, where the two killers go into the the, uh, the diner, looking looking to kill that guy. So there, there's a particular scene I wanted to talk talk about, and it kind of it really stuck out to me because I was like, 
in all of the films I've ever watched, I've never really seen like a shootout in a car. Like in, in the way, you, was was that something again that was in the script, or was it something that kind of like through budget constraints or something like that that you thought like that 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 shootout needs to happen there because it's it's a really inventive and kind of tense moment in the film. No, thanks. Uh, no, that was like I said, that was part of the story that I cracked once I got to the slacker format. Yeah, and I'd always wanted to do uh, that gunfight because I I love uh, Takeshi Katano. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, he did sort of that at the end of, um, fireworks, you know, but it's, it's very quick, you know, it's a, a very kind of short thing. Um, and he also does a shootout in an elevator. I think that's in Sonatine. And so I, I love the idea of doing that gunfight in an impossibly small space, yeah. and, you know, uh, uh, and dealing with the fact that people miss a lot. And, <laughs> and this is kind of a, you know, a firsthand experience. I was actually, when I was a cop, I was in a shootout on a train and, you know, bullets miss, you know, yeah. you know, shit. And, you know, we were all within seven feet of each other. And so I like the idea of, you know, when I constructed that whole sequence that it's like building this tension, you know, obviously it's about Eddie's character fomenting this mistrust between the two guys. And then once the one guy shuts him up, killing him, you know, that you just keep on cresting that mm-hmm. violence to where it explodes. But because, he, you know, the, you know, one guy's driving, so he's got control and the other guy, you know, shooting. And, you know, it, I just like the chaos of it. And then, you know, and then when it landed, it became a little more of sort of a, a Cone Brothers feeling, you know, of yeah. the two of them playing cat and mouse. And, you know, what I thought Eddie, Eddie did a, you know, killer job being a dead body, which was you know, <laughs> remarkably it was interesting because he's just as much a character, yeah, you know, yeah. in, in that sequence once, once he's dead, you know, it's, uh, it's, so anyway, yeah. So that was all, that was all designed. So, and also, I'm sorry, just, no. just to go to your point about budget, you know, the, the flip side of that is that, uh, you know, driving stuff is really time consuming. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I wanted to do poor man's process, which is a lot faster. And once I did that, the way that Manuel, the the uh, the DP, kind of designed it, it created this you know this beautiful again you know surrealism, this kind of alternate reality where you're not feeling literally headlights. You know, it's a lot of you know kind of colors and and you know abstract patterns against the grates and stuff. And and so uh, you know that that kind of elevated you know what did start you know, partly a necessity that I knew I was going to have to do at poor man's. I wasn't going to be yeah. doing these guys driving and shooting. Well, there's a really interesting thing because the whole film and obviously like the way that that shot and like the kind of, I would almost call it like a ha- like a surrealist haze to it. It feels like the type of story that Nick's character would be telling someone who's come to yeah. the hotel. And it's like, that. it's a, a, a film that like, obviously over the last uh, four years I've I've gone through and kind of talked about every single Nick Cage film obviously yes. pretty well there's a lot of them and it's like um like around especially around this period it's uh it's it's a real roll of the dice and I like to kind of go in without, without any expectations and stuff like that and I like well I wouldn't be speaking to you otherwise but I absolutely absolutely lo- love this film and I think like again like you, you mentioned Slacker and the kind of like it's a film I've never seen, but the kind of the way this film 
the way it all plays out and the kind of re- like uh, reference points, yeah, to to noir and even even the super like violent way that one of the assassins gets killed at the end and stuff like that. It kind of like just ticked all the boxes of stuff that like I I, I really enjoy. And um, so, at what stage did Nick come on board to the project? Was it a, a case of you had an idea that you would you you would want him since the last project like that failed or was it kind of send it out see who we get um it was kind of in between you know uh, <laughs> i think we were a little skeptical about getting nick because you know he passed on the other thing but gary and and eric the producers also had a relationship now with nick's manager and you know with with sort of his world and when they broached the idea of this script they said, you know, this sounds like something Nick might be interested in. And uh, again, I thought he was probably more likely to take the Rico part, but he, you know, he took to, you know, the lead, which was fantastic. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, it really was as prosaic as, you know, let's take another shot at Nick with this because we know the manager now and they say it's something he might be interested in. And, and Nick responded to it, you know, I mean, that, that was, which was fabulous, you know, and, and the thing that's interesting with Nick is I think, you know, he, he locks into, he doesn't necessarily lock into the prosaic reasons that he, he might do a piece, you know, he had very, you know, he was already in some ways deeper inside the character than I had written him by the time, you know, by the time he came back around to me, you know, it, it had, it clicked for him as, you know, I think he probably liked the way it was written. You know, he liked, he liked the world, but mostly he liked what he saw in Aranya. There was, you know, he, he called it sort of Peter Parker and Spider-Man, you know, that, that it's a guy playing a role, you know, and, and I think also the fact that it, you know, it's different, you know, I think he doesn't like to do the same stuff over and over again. I think that's why, you know, he does so many movies is that, he likes to do different stuff, you know, yeah. and doing these, these short, these short, you know, small movies allows him, you know, to step into a lot of different skins and, you know, play different characters. He also, he also really draws a lot, you know, from actors and performances yeah. that interest him, you know, uh, which, which was a fun ride. You know, it was a fun ride because he watches a lot of movies and, yeah. and uh, you know, you kind of, it's a challenge to find movies he hasn't seen and, you know, go back and forth <laughs> and, and find reference points that, that, you know, intrigue him. So for a film like this, obviously I, 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 you hear of directors giving their cast a kind of list of films to potentially watch or anything like that. Was there anything that you kind of gave to Nick for this to say, like, maybe, maybe check out this and kind of get a feel for what I'm going for? Well, we talked, we talked about Charles Bronson early mm-hmm. and then, uh, and then we talked. He talked about this movie Harakiri, uh, uh, this samurai movie I'd never seen that had some interesting, you know, uh, uh, parallels in structure to Aranya in terms of in terms of the way he sort of hides his past from from mm-hmm. the people he's confronting, and you know, and where where their their past, uh, you know, underlines his, uh, and then. I showed him this movie, Hickey and Boggs, 
that Robert <laughs> Culp directed, uh, you know, after I Spy, which I think is one of the great 70s noirs, you know, uh, you know, kind of unheralded, fucking hard as nails and, and just, you know, kind of does all the things I love about noir and does all the things I love about 70s movies, yeah. you know, beautifully. And he really got interested in, in Robert Culp. And I think uh, you see some Culp and you see a lot of Tashiro Mifune and, you know, kind of how he ultimately approaches the character. So that was that was a big one. And then I gave him uh, the short story I was telling you, I'll be waiting. And then I gave him, uh, uh, which he also read uh, the novel Fast One by Paul Kane, which I think is the greatest pulp move, uh, book ever written, um, kind of kind of distills everything about pulp down into, you know, a couple hundred pages. Amazing. You, you're giving me, you give me such a, such a wealth of things <laughs> that I need to kind of like catch up on. I'm kind of like currently in the moment, a bit, a bit of like a seventies binge after reading um, easy riders, raging bulls. So like, I'm kind of like yeah. he- hearing about, uh, yeah, the, the cult film and stuff like that. This is another one to go on the ever increasing list. I've got, um, how like I just wanted to get your opinion on because obviously you've worked with uh, Nicholas Cage and you've worked with uh, Mickey Rourke and Blunt Force Trauma and I think both of those actors kind of get like a bit of a, a short shrift from most people. I, I personally think un- unfairly d- d- when you come to approaching these like actors and stuff like that. What like what is it about them? Because obviously they come with this weight of public opinion and kind of what like i don't know an air like a an air of who they are to to the public does that does that factor into to when you cast people or is it just like no this is the right person for that role i you know i mean it's 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 a little tricky because when you're doing you know these very small indie movies Mm -hmm. a lot of it is about producers who go to financiers and say here's a list of people that will will justify the movie at this mm-hmm. price point. And, you know, the list of people gets smaller, even as the price point gets smaller, because the, you know, the profit margins on these kind of movies are, are narrow, you know, they're surprisingly narrow sometimes. Um, so, you know, I kind of, what, what tends to happen is that, you know, Gary will throw names at me and I'll say, well, you know, either I can get my head around it or I can't. And, uh, <laughs> And, you know, beyond that, you know, you, you definitely like Nick didn't have any kind of reputation coming in, in terms of, you know, all I'd heard was that he was great to work with, you yeah. know, and I talked to uh, the director who'd done the movie before mine, who had nothing but great stuff to say about him. You know, it's like, so, so there wasn't that sometimes leeriness. I mean, I've dealt with more in TV than features really, but, you know, once in features too, you know, sometimes you deal with, really horrific actors and they you know they can derail you especially when you're you know every day you're chasing you're chasing time you know Mm -hmm. you're not going to get extra days you're not going to get reshoots and so you get nervous about you know about who's going to show up on set and whether they're going to honor the amount of time that you have and i guess because nick does these so often he's really the opposite i mean he he showed up in bogota the first day and he had the script memorized. Yeah. I mean, line for line, like, you know, kind of old school Shakespearean actor, you know, came in and, and just 
knew everything that, you know, literally walked, you know, he said, Hey, you want to run lines? And we went over to the bar and he ran the whole fucking movie off. book. <laughs> so, you know, and he said, you know, and, and then we ran it again with Annabelle, the, the woman in red, and she was unnerved because she wasn't off book. And he said, look, you know, I used to, I used to do this, you know, you know, like you, you know, I learned it as I went along. He said, but I find that because these movies, you know, there's such a short amount of time, I come just ready to go. You know, I come prepared. And and he was, he was just, I mean, which even so, you know, I would see him sometimes down at the bar, you know, to, uh, what we call the aria, you know, his big, his big speech at the end where he mm-hmm. basically tells the whole story. And he would walk through every detail about where he was going to light a match about, you know, how he was going to write information on a, on a napkin or a bar coaster. It's like, you know, nothing, nothing wasn't, you know, very kind of carefully premeditated for him, which, you know, he left himself open yeah. to messing around with stuff, but, but he also, you know, he was just kind of super prepared and, you know, and respected the time, you know, that, that you have. So, so yeah, you know, I mean, I guess that ran far afield of your story, but, no, your no, question, no, no. but you know, but you know, Nick is a fucking icon. I was like, you know, I should be so lucky as to have Nick Cage <laughs> in a movie, you know you know, short shrift or not by others. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, obviously 2020 was a very weird year in, in regards to the world <laughs> and especially especially film. But um, as we start to wrap things up, what is what does the future look like for you in regards to uh, future projects or anything like that? I know a lot of the time you can't really, it's, it's hard to talk about or anything like that. Or what, what's on the horizon <laughs> for you, Ken? Uh. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not that I can't talk about stuff, but I I am very superstitious because, you know, you talk about something and then invariably it doesn't happen so that everyone can ask you what happened with it. I I do have, uh, you know, two more kind of similar sized projects to Kill Chain and Blunt Force that I'm working with Gary on. You know, one of them, I think we have the money, but it's conditional on cast. And so it's about, you know, trying to, to, to find a window. Nick was was attached to actually to do it uh but then you know 2020 happened and everything sort of fell apart you know and and uh i don't know if we'll find you know with nick a lot of times it's about finding a window so <laughs> yeah you know, we'll probably you know i don't know i don't know if you know nick's gonna be that but but uh so i have you know i have a project with gary then and you know i'm writing another feature and then you know, and TV, TV tends to be for me a little bit looser, you know, it's like mm-hmm. stuff comes to me because of my background, because I know how to run a show and I sort of, you know, you know, I take what comes my way and figure out if I want to do it. Perfect. Well, before I let you go, I just, yeah, I just wanted to kind of like briefly touch on the thing that met, like, this isn't a, a, a slight to certain directors, but like what you managed to to contain in Nick Cage obviously like he's he's known to kind of like go off on these wild dalliances of, of performances and like what 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 I, what I noticed in Kill Chain is that his character has this perfect like it's like knowing that 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 menace and anger is there but it seems to be just like bubbling under the surface of the character and I feel like in 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 other directors' hands that can kind of like I don't know. Uh, to me, Nick Cage seems like somebody who 
in in the wrong hands can kind of like not be not not be like utilized for what he can do and like yeah just like as a fan of the movie and as a fan of nick's like just wanted to kind of say thanks for kind of like i don't know creating something that like really plays to the strengths of what what nick can do yeah i mean it's it's funny because i do get a lot of you know i saw on the internet a lot of people bitching about the fact that he doesn't you know Mm -hmm. do the big nick cage thing but and and I'd love to say that it's genius on my part. I think it, you know, it wasn't in the script. You know, this mm-hmm. wasn't that story. And, you know, the things that attracted Nick to it weren't, oh, I'm going to get a chance to wig out to yeah. do this big explosive thing. You know, it's like it the movie has sort of his character especially has a kind of dry, dark humor to him. And you mm-hmm. know, he played to that. You know, he you know, he played to sort of the absurdities of some of the moments, but but you know, there really wasn't any place where, where it called for him to explode. And I don't, I don't think even in a lot of those movies. I mean, I think you know, you know, like anything else, you know, you do a bunch of movies, and some of them are better than others. And you know, it's true for all of us. Yeah, yeah. In TV, we always say you don't have 22 best episodes of the season. You know, it's <laughs> like just, you know, some things work out differently, and not always in ways that you can predict. I think that you know. I think that he tends to do what he thinks, you know, is organic to that script. So in some places it's just, you know, I mean, yeah, some of the movies I don't, I don't get as much as others, but, you know, for me, it was just the, you know, there was a, there was a, there was definitely a delineated path that the character went down and, you know, he, he played it magnificently, but he didn't say, Oh, I'm going to, wander oh, off into yeah. the woods and do some other shit yeah well yeah i think for for the kind of true cage fans there's enough cage isms in there kind of like line oh yeah there's like the, the 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 people kind of deriding it for the for the no like freak out moments i i, I don't think are kind of really uh well versed in in the kind of many layers of of what nick cage can do and i think this this is a i don't know it's, yeah it's a great film well, thanks. I mean, yeah, I mean, sitting and editing, it was the little shit mm-hmm. that just amazed me. There's a, there's the moment when he, he says something to the killer about, you know, to have gone all this way and not, you know, not hear the point of the story. And he just throws his eyes to, to Ali, Ali me. And it's, it's just this little thing and it's so Nick and it's, it's just, you know, it's in that micro, it's in that detail. Yeah. And, you know, that's the shit that I love. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the shit that, you know, you know, movies, movies, you know, have that chance to go to those, those kind of granular moments. You know, TV doesn't always. You know, TV really is a lot of pushing story along. So. Definitely. Well, uh, Ken, thank you so much for your time. And if uh, people want to keep yeah. up to date with what's coming in the future and stuff like that, where where can they follow you on social media? You're on social media, right? Well, I know, I know for a fact you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I'm on I'm on Twitter. You know. Uh, uh, tend to be more political than, you know, stuff coming up, self-promotional. Well, that's what uh, we need right now. We need some politics, right? We need people, <laughs> we need people calling yeah. these dickheads dickheads, Ken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So, so, yeah, don't go there if you don't want to see a lot of angry left of center stuff. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not really great about self-promoting. I guess IMDB, you know, tends to be perfect when stuff actually becomes relevant, that's where it shows up. 
Amazing. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, right. Ken, and coming and raging with Kate. Thank you. There we go. Again, thank you very much to Ken Sanzel for his time coming and raging with Cage with us. That was that was a great conversation, right, guys? If if you feel the same, if you feel differently, if you feel differently about any of the films I ever discuss on this podcast, please do not hesitate to get in touch, which you can do on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Caged in Pod. You can always drop an email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. You can support the podcast by going to Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this podcast now, giving it a five-star rating and review. I am told all of that stuff really helps to boost this up the charts, as well as subscribing. So make sure make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get the episodes as and when they drop. If you would like kind of teases as to what is coming up film-wise on the podcast or kind of what I've been watching in research for the podcast adds another little extra layer to everything that's going on you can find me on letterboxd which is again caged in pod and if you would like to support the podcast uh, financially you can always do that via patreon which is patreon forward for uh, patreon.com forward slash caged in pod or you can go to caged in limitedrun.com to pick up one of the fantastic Tim Hornsby caged in Superman prints and soon the pre-order link is imminent to get the caged in Wickerman t-shirt which the colorway has been decided it's going to be a nice tan colored t-shirt with a kind of burnt orange design on it like the ink and Tim Sinclair has done an amazing print. If you're not following on the socials, head on over to all of that to make sure you get to see this amazing design. And depending, well, if you're listening to the design might be final. I kind of tossed and turned with a couple of different designs. There's either kind of like a small print on the front and like a big print on the back. But a lot of people seem to be digging the big print on the front. And once you see it, you'll understand exactly why so obviously be sure to keep an eye out for that obviously i'll be dropping stuff in the show notes as soon as that is live as for next week's episode we'll be back on chart with just a regular episode next wednesday and i will be joined by musician and podcaster mike west to talk about the 2019 action movie primal so do be sure to come and check out that one again subscribe so you get it the day it drops i also have a few more bonus episodes that i'll be dropping probably again on a friday basis i've got an amazing conversation with marianne zumberg all about her top five and bottom five nick cage movies as last year she did a full like 97 cage films in a year so had an amazing conversation with her and i've got an amazing conversation with kevin frolix who has written vampire's kiss the musical so do keep your eyes and ears out for all of that stuff i'll be announcing on social media as well as letting you guys know on here when they are going to drop so as always guys 
I've been Petrus Patsilovis. I've been caged in. You've been amazing. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged in Copa Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.